Yes, sir. The grace of God gives us security, doesn't it? Not just security in the next life, but security in this life. There are so many um, things in the Word of God that we look for, but we never find because they're byproducts. I'll talk to you about one in a few minutes. But security is one of those. Security is a byproduct. You do not find security. Security finds you. And security is found through the grace of God, uh, through the love of Christ. He never changes. And as long as you base your security on on something that will change, you'll never be secure. But because of His, uh, His abundant kindness and grace, we are very secure in Him, not just with our eternal destiny, but... When everything goes wrong, and I sure do appreciate that wonderful song. Thank you so much. Hope you have your Bible today. This is a, a Bible-believing and a Bible-preaching uh, and teaching church. And I want you to turn to two places in the Bible this morning. Uh, first of all, to the book of Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> Pardon me, we'll look in a couple of places there. And then in James chapter 3. And uh, we'll start Philippians, go to James, and come back to Philippians. James chapter 1, and then Philippians 3, and then we'll go to uh, Philippians 2 in that order. Brother Floyd, it's good to see you today. I miss you, miss your fellowship. You're a precious blessing to my heart. God bless you, my brother. Before uh, Paula and I were married, um, in fact, before I was ever engaged to anyone, I... uh, I knew that I wanted to be married, so I, I studied marriage. I didn't just read about it in a book, but I began to observe people that were happily married. Now, uh, the word mentor is a buzzword. It's a good thing. Uh, it's in the church, the word discipleship. Uh, I'm going to tell you something, and some of you will be shocked, and that's okay. When I grew up, uh, nobody talked about discipleship. Um, it's a biblical concept. Um, nobody discipled me. I, I'm not proud of that. My parents did more than anybody. But once again, it was a byproduct of things that they did. Discipleship, in my opinion, is not a curriculum. It's what happens uh, uh, in you through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And God uses people to do some of those things. Uh, mentoring is the same way. I think sometimes we talk about concepts, but they never happen to us and for us. But I was hungry, and I think if you're hungry uh, to grow in Christ, you're, you're going to find those resources uh, without knowing the definitions of them. Uh, mentoring is like that. And so I wanted to be a good husband. I wanted to be a good dad. And I began to look for examples and and people that were good fathers and good husbands. And even after we got married, uh, I I began to do that. So there was never any kind of a relationship where I met someone on a weekly basis. I'm not against that. Don't take that this way. I think sometimes in the church I've met people that are victims, though. And they kind of feel like, well, nobody's helped me, and they blame everybody else. And, uh, you know, God can't help you if you have a victim mindset. If you're hungry, you'll find a way. That's, what I'm, that's not the message. That's just for free. Uh, if you're hungry, you're going to find a way. And so uh, I was hungry. I, I wanted this. And so I began to observe people. And I began to ask questions. And if I saw a, 
some features or some qualities in a, in a father's life, I, I would ask him, and sometimes I would ask him for a meeting, and uh, or just ask him on the spot. And sometimes I wasn't able to do that, but I would just make some observations and maybe go away and just think about that because that was important to me. But in relationship to marriage, one of the things that was important to me that impressed me that stood out between couples that uh, I said, I want that in my relationship with Paula, but I want it for myself. Because I learned this, those of you that are younger, uh, you can't change your spouse. Uh, I did some premarital counseling uh, earlier this week. I said, now let me tell you, uh, lesson one, don't try to change your spouse. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And uh, when you do that, you're treading on dangerous ground. Uh, There are some principles on how you can talk to people, but that's the Holy Spirit's job uh, to change other people. So I, I thought, well, well, what are some things that, that I would like? And I think one of the top shelf items was a matter of, of unity in a marriage. And how can I, I maintain uh, unity with my wife on a consistent basis where there will not be a spirit of argumentation in our home? Where there would be peace in our home? And I want you to listen carefully because some of you did not have this. And you have just carried over a generational sin, if you will, into your family. Or you're about to and you don't know it. And I'm going to talk to you about a, a principle that works, that, that Paul wrote to the church. But the principle works in your marriage. We're going to apply it to both. You can apply it to any relationship. Because these are principles. We're going to talk to you about, about unity and some principles here. I've been talking to you about this for a while. And, uh, and it helped me. And it's still helping me. Unity is not an accident. Unity is a byproduct of other factors. It's not one single thing. I put it this way. You don't find unity. Unity finds you. Uh, you come to a place where that uh, you have a family. You have a relationship with a friend. You have a relationship with your spouse. You have a relationship with your adult children that is good. But it's because of what God has done in your heart and hopefully in their heart because of biblical principles. Now, in the book of Philippians, if I were to ask you what the theme is, those of you that have been saved for a long time, you would say, well, the theme is joy. And it is. And uh, a couple of years ago, I I needed uh, the book of Philippians. So I began to read it and study it. And there's a dual theme in the book of Philippians. One theme is the book of joy, uh, or the theme of joy. The words joy, joyful are used there, rejoice in the book of Philippians more than any book in the Bible, except for the book of of Psalms. Um, But but the the words rejoice and joy and joyful. But the second theme that's in the book of Philippians is parallel, and it fits right with it. And that's the word or the idea of partnership. Those are the two themes in in Philippians. And here's why I'm giving that to you right now. Because joy is found in in Christ. Now I want to define something. I remember early on, I grew up in church. And so uh, sometimes my pastor would say things and I would agree with it. But here's the problem when you grow up in church. Sometimes you know the dictionary, but you don't know the definition. 
And one of those, one of those dictionary terms is the word joy. We all have the dictionary, but we all have different definitions. And it has different definitions. But let me give you a different uh, synonym for the word joy. A different synonym for the word joy is the word uh, contentment. A joyful person isn't always someone that is laughing or smiling. Uh, you know, Paul was in prison when he, when he wrote the book of Philippians. And in chapter 4, he writes about contentment. Uh, you show me a, a joyful person 100% every time, you, I, I'll show you a contented person. A joyful person is a contented person every time. There are some other synonyms there. So joy is not only found in Christ, where he gives you contentment in your circumstances and whatever those circumstances are. But listen carefully, because you don't hear this much. It almost sounds like blasphemy, but I'm going to prove it to you. But joy is also found in people. And you said, well, I believe that, but my joy is found in Christ. But joy is also found in people. Now, your, your primary joy is found in Christ, but the degree of your joy can be granted in people. You said, now, preacher, let me track with you. Now, listen, remember the dual theme, partnership and joy. Those two themes, the partnership is in the mission of reaching people for Christ. Paul said, I'm in prison. In fact, he said in chapter 1, he said, I'm in prison, but part of my imprisonment here is to be able to reach people for Christ. And um, we're partners. And he, it was a thank you. Part of the reason for this in chapter 4 was a thank you letter for their partnership and communicating with him. The word communicate means you're partnering with me uh, there. We're partners. And you bring me great joy. So you, you find joy in Christ, but you find joy in people. You have your Bible open to Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse 4. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you. This is very personal. He's writing to them. For you all, look at this, making request with joy. Now, the question is, he talking about the joy of the Lord. Well, he had the joy of the Lord. He was content, and there was a certain happiness. I know there's a distinguishing mark there between joy and happiness. But the joy there was was the joy that he had when he thought about them, when he prayed for them. You can't pray for someone if you don't think about him. When he made requests for them, he made requests with joy. His heart smiled. You have people like that that you pray for, and and, and joy bubbles up inside you say, I thank God for them. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. Joy comes from Christ, but people can give you joy. Now, you see where I'm headed with this. People can discourage you. Look at chapter 2 of Philippians in verse 2. Philippians 2, 2. Fulfill ye my joy. The word fulfill there has the idea of, of filling full. It means to influence, you, you have the ability to influence my joy. That's what he's saying. Now, how did they influence his joy? That ye be like-minded. Isn't this interesting? Having the same love, being of one mind, or of one accord, of one mind, by your unity. It's almost like a parent telling his children, now, now my joy is more fulfilled when we get along here, during, when you're here for Christmas and you're not fighting. And every parent here knows what that means. And as their spiritual parent, he's saying that 
when, when you argue and you're not getting along and the unity is not there, my joy is not correct. It's not what it ought to be. I still have joy in Christ, but my joy is not what it ought to be. Ask you a question. Has your joy when you're not getting along with your brother, your sister in Christ, with your spouse, with your brothers and your physical brothers and sisters? And then turn to Philippians chapter 4 with me. Look at verse 1. Philippians 4 and verse 1. Therefore, my, my brethren, I love the words here, how he describes these other Christians, dearly beloved and longed for. I can't talk a lot about this, so much I want to say. And then he says of them, my joy, my crown, stand fast in the Lord. And then he repeats it, my dearly beloved. But notice what he calls these Christians. He says... You are my joy. Now, now here's what I'm trying to say is that joy is found in relationships, period. Your joy is found, number one, in your relationship with God. And number two, in your relationship with people. If you do not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you'll never have joy. You can seek it in a pill, in a bottle, in a needle, and in fact, in other relationships, as you have a relationship with people, but you have a relationship with God, you're not going to have a full relationship, a full joy, because that's where the apex of joy is found. But God has also ordained, in the passages I've given you and other passages as you read through the Word of God, that God gives us the degrees of our joy are affected by relationship with people. He made us that way. I want to ask you a question. Do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Do we do that? You study the word grieve. The word grieve means to make sad. Do we make sad? Do we make God sad? You mean we influence God's joy? Now, I know this, sounds, this almost sounds heretical, doesn't it? Because God is very joyful. You see, God has a relationship with His children. Joy is found in relationships, but the opposite is also true. When our relationships are not correct, we're not functioning properly, most of all with the Lord, but also horizontally with people, then the joy factor goes down. Now listen, church, nothing, nothing, nothing destroys the work of God and our partnership in the gospel like ongoing conflict. Now, I've told you this because we've been in this uh, little series in Philippians 2 for a while. This is not uh, uh, corrective for our church, but it's prescriptive. It's, it's sowing seeds so that we will not get here. But when you have a church family that has ongoing conflict, it hinders the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God is grieved. And the Holy Spirit cannot move, and the work of God is hindered in that church. Now, in the Word of God, we're going to look in Philippians 2 in just a moment. It shows us what unity looks like, but here's the idea about how unity is maintained. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to show you briefly what it looks like. This is kind of a bridge, an introduction to one of these concepts, one of these ideas. That if you, if you will grasp this and practice it, it will transform your life, transform your relationships with people. Some, I think sometimes people think, uh, well, they're just a good people person. No, they just know how to love people. 
I think we sometimes salespeople say when they need to learn um, how to deal with people. Well, that's manipulation. If you learn how to love people and you die to self and you're doing things for the good of other people, then you begin to serve people. Then out of that flows good relationships. Now, let me, let me give you a definition of unity. You may want to write this down. Unity is maintained, and that's the idea, maintained as a byproduct, and here it is, between people that have Christ-centered relationships. And these relationships are characterized by several things. Authenticity, transparency, and trust. Those things. A Christ-centered relationship. If you want to have, um, main, if you want to have the the, the type of, of unity that is maintained, there's a Christ-centered relationship, but it's characterized by authenticity, transparency, and trust. In fact, I have in my notes AT and T. Now you may have their internet, and that may want to make you cuss. But it's a good way to remember. Authenticity, transparency, and trust. So what is the the key to a marriage that lasts and is characterized by consistent joy and unity? Authenticity, transparency, and trust. What are the components of a relationship that consistently manifests unity in, in a fellowship, in a church fellowship? I will promise you that church has a Christ-centeredness to it and has authenticity, transparency, and trust. I promise you. How is unity maintained, and listen carefully, in times of disagreement and disappointment? Because you're going to disagree with your spouse. You're going to be disappointed in brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to be disappointed in your preacher. Uh, Your preacher may be disappointed in you, but when there's authenticity, when there's transparency and when there's trust, you get through those times. In fact, you get to them pretty easily. But when you do not have a Christ-centered relationship, and listen, unity is a byproduct. And here's what I think happens. I think sometimes we preach on unity. Well, let's have unity in our family. Now, okay, kids, you got to get along. And then you walk out of the bedroom, and three minutes later, they're still fighting. Because unity is a byproduct. And the same thing with husbands and wives and same things in the church. You can't give a sermon, a lecture, a pointed emphasis on unity. It's a byproduct. It is maintained when people have Christ-centered relationships. And these relationships are characterized by authenticity, transparency, and trust. Now, listen carefully. Unity is not static, but it's dynamic. Now, you say, preacher, what does that mean? It means you just don't put it into a place and there it's done. Dynamic, dynamic means it's fluid, it changes. Uh, there's different factors. You know, when it's, uh, when it's cold outside, the service is different. When it's, the sun is not shining, the service is different. When um, there's been a war and, and, and people have, many people have lost their lives in the war and somebody in the church, we know someone who lost their life, it influences the mood. You see, it's dynamic. Things change. We hurt each other's feelings in the home. Things change. Unity is never fixed. 
It's a byproduct. There's an ebb and flow. It's not fixed. It is not static. But but it's it's dynamic. It is not passive. But unity, listen carefully, has an influence upon any environment. And listen carefully. It is like a seed that is planted. And I'm and, and I'm gonna kind of pivot right here. We're gonna go into James chapter three, because this is I almost didn't go into this passage, but I, I, I want you to see this. You see, mamas and daddies and those of you that are leaders, you determine the environment that you have by the seeds that you sow. I remember years ago I read this in a book, and, and I, I went back and I read it again because I didn't like what it said. And the guy, and I think there was an arbitrary grabbing of the number, but the, the number didn't matter. What the guy said was the truth. And he said, now, <clears throat> when you go to your church, he said, as a pastor, you can't do anything about the problems that you have in that church. But he said, after five years, the problems are your problems. Now, now here's what he meant. And I know that the pastor can't fix all the problems, but here's what he meant. You don't reproduce what you want. You reproduce what you want. You reproduce what you are. And you begin to sow the seeds. Listen carefully. You begin to sow the seeds that reproduce what you have sown. You see, if you don't like the kind of issues that your kids are having, you, you have a role in that. Your kids have to respond. Proverbs 4 says the kids have to listen. But parents have to train. You have to sow some things. And as a church, you have to respond to the Word of God. But I have to teach them. This is why I'm very intentional about the words that I use and what I'm saying. I just don't get up and give a little cute outline and we go out the door. I'm really intentional about some things I'm saying. These are seeds that I'm trying to sow because I want to help you with this. Unity is the byproduct of some seeds that are sown. So is disunity. When you look at, I remember I was talking, I saw my son, John, his team play. John works at, a, at an inner city school in downtown Chattanooga. And he works with some uh, children, some, some young people. It's a high school uh, program, baseball program. They have some challenges. There's a lot of co- conflict there. There's anger. There's discord. And there's, there's some generational destruction because because. The gospel has not been there before. But here's what challenges me. Listen, this challenges me. is is within our church. Some of you have the gospel, but you have not been sowing these seeds that will bring forth peace in your home. And you still have this conflict in your marriage. You still have this conflict in your your children. And and you have this ugly... These ugly, unnecessary things happening. And you become a victim. Well, I know what we'll do. We'll change churches. I know what we'll do. We'll do this. Until you begin to sow the seeds of the Word of God, of the principles of the Word of God, you're not going to reap the harvest that you want. Now, what are the seeds that you sow? Notice in James chapter 3, we're going to come back to Philippians, but look at James chapter 3. Look at verse 17, James three seventeen. 
but the wisdom that is from above. So here he talks about God's wisdom. And frankly, these, this is a context of word. When you read in James chapter 3 and verse 1, he's talking about the way that you use your words. The wisdom that is from above. Now, what does this person look like? For good or bad, these wise words, this is a result of this person's life. But the wisdom that is from above is, number one, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown of peace of them that make peace. Now I want to emphasize these eight words really quick. First of all, it means that you... As you become this person, you become a godly person, and you sow these things in your relationships, the Bible says, first, there's peace. First, pure. I'm sorry, first, pure. Everything in the list flows from purity, the fountain of purity. Now, this doesn't mean that you just don't sin. He's talking about communication. He's talking about relationships in James chapter 3. So, so the idea here is that when I'm communicating... I'm free from jealousy, bitterness, manipulation, the pride of being right, of anger. Let me ask you a question. What have you been sowing with your spouse lately? What do you sow with your children? Are you short with them? What's your tone of voice? Is it, is it pure? You sow these things in a church family. And then the word peaceable. The word peaceable there, verse 17, has the idea of serenity, of being quiet. That doesn't mean that you don't talk, but it's talking about your spirit. It means when you deal with an issue, you're not thriving on controversy. You don't enjoy uh, controversy. You're not always looking for the flaw in a person. And you're, listen, you're peaceable because you're at peace with yourself. You're not always trying to pick at someone. But you're peaceable. This, 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 is a, this is a seed that you sow. It's a seed that you sow. The next one there is the word gentle. It means mild, patient, moderate. It's the opposite of being angry. It's, it is a man or woman that's not quick to judge She's not harsh, but lenient. They're able to restrain from jumping to conclusions. They're a gentle person. They're slow to, to come in and jump in to say, well, I know why you did that. <clears throat> First, pure, peaceable, gentle. And then this one, easy to be entreated. It means to be agreeable, easy to work with. It means willing to listen, to hear all sides. It means to be approachable. Now, some Christians hear that and say, well, I'm not going to be a, a compromiser. Or as I tell Tim, a com- compromiser. But that's, this is what the word means. It means I'm easy to be entreated. I'm approachable. You're able to deal with me. I'm not controversial in my spirit. I may be wrong about this. I'm not talking about the fundamental basic Bible's doctrines. But there's easy to be entreated. Uh, son, son, where have you been? 
I mean, do you, do you automatically assign a motive? Where have you been? Do you say that to your husband? Do you automatically assign a motive? Well, I know, I know where he, but maybe this one time, maybe this one time he had a reason for being late. Are you easy? Because listen, you're sowing seeds. You're so, and, and when in the church we do, pastors do this in the way we preach. I, I don't want to be an angry pastor. Full of mercy. Treating people better than they are deserve to be treated. You pull up to the drive-thru, the order's not right. I hate drive-thrus. The devil made them. Paula likes them. I just don't like them. I want to go in. And if there's more than five orders, I want to divide it up. They're going to get it wrong. We go in, we go through the drive-thru, and people want to specialize. Their I want minus onions plus dead. He said, nope, everybody's getting the same, so I'm going to get mixed up. My dad was a prophet. He was right. Full of mercy. The word full means controlled by mercy. I'm not responding in like kind. You know, a lot of times when the wait, waiter or waitress brings your food out, it was the kitchen's fault. This is not right. And you look at them. And uh, in the first place, have you ever thought they may spit on your food? Just a little hint there. It's not in the sermon, but a little thought. In the second place, it, it may not be their fault. Full of mercy, full of good fruits, the good fruit of godliness known by the way you speak, the way you live. This is the evidence of a godly life, of godly care, full of good fruits. These are things that you sow every day. These are seeds. And then the Bible says without partiality. Now, here's the idea that these are words spoken with conviction, but with kindness that does not cause faction or division in a group. Well, that's very difficult to do. It's difficult to do with your family or with your wife or with your husband to make them feel demeaned. To speak the truth in love. It's very difficult. But that's what this person does. They speak with that partiality. It's, it's a very, uh, it's a great word. I don't have time to go into it. And then with that, with that hypocrisy. The word there means sincere, real. They're genuine. They're not trying to manipulate you. What you see is what you get. They're just genuine. These eight qualities, pure, peaceable, gentle, Easy to be entreated, full of mercy, full of good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now, here's what happens. This kind of person, the Bible says there in James chapter 3, look at it with me, in verse 18. Notice what happens. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. This kind of person becomes a righteous person, a righteous man, a righteous woman, a righteous teenager. And they bear the fruit of righteousness. And what is in fruit? What is in fruit is seed. And you begin to sow that seed, but you sow, watch this. Here's what it says. You sow it in peace for a harvest that comes later. But look at it. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace... And then he's redundant of them that make peace. Now listen carefully. People feed on your words. 
Now, when I stand here, I'm very cognizant, not only of what I say, but of how I say it. And I don't always get it right. In fact, preachers say the wrong thing. You know, one of my fears, Floyd, I don't know if you've ever done it. One of my great fears is I'm going to cuss in the pulpit. My wife, my wife has accused me. And Miss Belcher's back there nodding. I did not. I did not. I did not. God knows my heart. I did not. Kathy and Paula says, you said it. I said, I did not. And the Lord knows. They just have a bad mind is what it is. Yes. Yes. Brother Tim, you know my pain. Tim, we're sowing seeds right now. Oh, God. God, forgive us. We're just having fun right now. But I'm very cognizant of these things. Because in a moment, if you have a bad five minutes or a bad sentence or a bad day, but week by week by week, you know, I don't reproduce what I want. I reproduce what I am as a pastor. And daddy and mama, you don't reproduce what you want in your children. You reproduce what you are, but you reproduce with your words. People feed on your words for good or bad, and they, you reap the harvest of your words. Could it be that the environment at your work or your office that you control is related to your words? Could it be? And you look at this list in James chapter 3, and, and if you'll allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, say, you know, I, I don't like those things, or I need to do that. I'm not doing that. Well, here's what the Bible says. The fruit of righteousness, this is a result of this man or woman that fulfills these eight qualities in verse 17, is sown. Because in the fruit is seed that you can sow later. But you sow those things in peace of them that make peace. You need to be, you see, peacemakers enjoy peace. Warren Wiersbe said something, he said it about this passage. Look look at this, this is powerful. Wiersbe said, what we are is what we live. And what we live is what we sow. What we sow determines what we reap. That is so powerful. What we are is what we live. What we live is what we sow. And what we sow determines what we reap. What are you sowing? Because that's what you are. Because that's going to be your harvest in your home with your children. And the kind of home that you have later. I wonder what kind of peace or what kind of damage or what kind of destruction or or, or your class or... Whatever you have. Sit down there and pay attention to me. Now you can deal with people one-on-one. There's a whole lot of ways. I have a strategy for disruptions in the church. Some of you have seen me use it before. Um, But I've tried to think you can't do it 100% of the time. But I've tried, okay, what do I do with disruptions in church? Um, how, How do I handle when I'm disrupted? Because you have to think things through as best that I can. Because I know that I'm sowing things. 
what parents do in moderation, their children excuse in excess. I believe that. What I have sown in moderation with my family, my children will excuse in excess, and yours will too. What kind of seeds have you been sowing in your home regarding maintaining, maintaining unity? Because if there's conflict, now I'm not saying everything goes back to the parents. Kids are responsible for their sin. But I am saying that we sow seeds. That's what I'm saying. It is a sin to sow conflict in a local church among the people of God because there's going to be a harvest worse than the people that sowed the seed expected. Well, I just told one person. Well, the person you told, they just told one person. And they just told one person. And, and soon, it, it, things get out of control. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16, These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto the Lord. And I want you to notice of these seven things, how many of them have to do with our speech. A proud look, a lying tongue, there's one. Hands that shed innocent blood, uh, that deals with abortion, doesn't it? A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift and running to mischief. That can apply to, you know, the tongue and how people want to use that. A false witness that speaketh lies. That deals with our speech. And here, here it is right here, what I want you to see. And he that soweth discord among brethren. You see, you don't, you don't have to sow discord. You can sow harmony. Some people don't sow anything. They're just kind of neutral. What are, you, what are you sowing in the church? Are you sowing harmony? Or are you sowing discord? The Bible says this is an abomination to God. God hates this with a special hatred. These seven things are an abomination. He that soweth discord among the brethren. God hates this. I don't like it when people... In administrations, after a political administration, they write these tell-alls. Or after someone, um, after their parents die or their parents may not die, they'll write a book about their family. Well, here's what my mom and dad did. Well, you want your kids writing about you? Writing about all of your flaws? Are, are you going to sow this? Don't you understand that you're sowing the seeds for the people that know you? I mean, what, what's good game for you is good for them. What, what, what is wrong with us that we think that, well, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to write bad things about other people, but nobody's going to do this about me because I'm untouchable? Richard White taught me this. Richard's in heaven now. I love Richard. He was a friend. and He said, you know, preacher, he called me preacher. He said, Rick, I, I remember these churches I would tell preachers, he said, don't, don't get up and talk about other preachers and, and, and get up and talk about preachers you don't like. He said, because when you give them the taste of another preacher's blood, you're giving them the taste of your blood one day. They're going to come after you. And I thought, boy, Richard, that's the truth. But can I tell you, listen carefully, 
I don't do that because I'm trying to protect myself or myself. I just don't believe in it. Because he that soweth discord among the brethren is an abomination of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said this, Satan greatly approves of our railing at each other, but God does not. God does not. We, we so easily go into this thing of, of critical, negative words and, and sowing these things against other people. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 27, An ungodly man diggeth up evil. He goes around supporting, finding things and facts so-called that will support his conclusions. And, and maybe it's true, but you're not supposed to speak the truth that's bad. An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and in his lips there is as a burning fire. There's no healing there. There's pain there. He goes around hurting people. A froward man. The word froward there means a crooked man, a perverse man. Soweth. There's a word sow again. See it? Sowing and reaping. You see how this is used with our words over and over again? A crooked man sows strife. In other words, it's going to come to reap later. And a whisper. Look at this. A whisper. Separated, look at this, chief friends. This, this man, this woman that goes around digging up evil does more damage than he or she can ever imagine. They once were chief friends, but lies were spread. Our bad truth was spread. I, I know stories like this I can't go into. This is, a fro- this is not a good man. This is a froward man. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 10. Cast out the scorner and contention shall go out. It's amazing what happens to an environment when, when the scorner is gone. Yea, strife and reproach shall cease. This is why church discipline, one of the, the functions of church discipline is, is to deal with the talebearer. Cast out the scorner. Contention shall go out. Strife and reproach shall cease. There are certain people that, that have just sow things. They, they sow negativity. They, they sow disunity. They sow discord. And those things begin to crop up and people begin to have questions in their minds. And it's sad to say some things that aren't true. Most of the time they're not true. Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 20, where no wood is, there the fire goes out. Where there's no verbal conflict, there's no discord. So where there's no talebearer, the strife ceaseth. Your words matter. May I ask a question? Are, Are you this person in your home? Maybe as a mom or dad or a spouse, this is you. Being very frank, maybe this is you. You're the one. If it is, you need to own it. So I'm sowing these things in the life of my family. Then I get in the car and I just complain. I'm a complainer. I'm just negative. I just sow this stuff. God, please help me. Help me. Deliver me from myself. Not just from hell one day. Deliver me from the, from the evil that resides in me now.
2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 23, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid. No, look at this, knowing that they do gender strifes, plural. The word gender there means to conceive and bring forth. It means to have a baby. There are certain things you shouldn't say and shouldn't repeat because they bring forth strifes. I know people that they enjoy throwing something controversial out in the middle and they stand back and they cross their arms. They just watch it burn. Really, I know, I know people like this. You talk about a froward person, somebody that's sick. And, and you don't need to associate with these people. One day they're going to come after you. One day it's going to be your child. One day it's going to be your marriage. You see, you may enjoy hooking up in here in that kind of garbage. Now, one day it's going to be you. And I'm not after anybody now. I don't have an agenda other than this is just a pure word of God. Third John talks about a man. In fact, the Bible names him. God was pretty serious about this. His name was Diotrephes. Third John chapter 1. There's only one chapter in Third John. But notice in verse 9. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth, now watch this, who loveth to have the preeminence. And you'll find out here, he doesn't love the Lord, he doesn't love God's people, but he loves himself. And specifically, he loves the preeminence. The Greek word preeminence there, loveth to have preeminence, is one word. It means love of prominence. He loves recognition. He wanted, he wanted to be on the platform. Now listen carefully. I'm scared of people that want to be in front of other people. I, I, I want folks that you have to push them out a little bit. Preacher, I, I don't think I can do that. I'm a little more comfortable with somebody that's a little reticent because I feel like, okay, they really don't love the preeminence as much. Diotrephes loved the preeminence among them, and he receiveth us not. Now, John was an apostle. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prating. That just means he made empty accusations against us with malicious words. He wasn't just talking about him. He did these maliciously with intent to injure and harm. Not content there with those words, neither... Doth he himself receive the brethren or other people, other evangelists that traveled and brought the truth and so forth? Forbiddeth them that would, he casteth them out of the church. And notice the final words here. Beloved, follow not that which is evil. He's speaking about this man and his behaviors, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath, look at this, hath not seen God. This man was not a Christian. Two times it says, he's evil and he doeth evil. This man was not a Christian. Satan had raised up this man to come up and wreak havoc in the church. I've been in several churches where I have seen this happen. Where a diatrophies has come up and who loved to have the preeminence. And you need to listen carefully. These are biblical examples. And you may say, well, that's interesting. It's interesting, but the man is absent humility. But 
But one day, if the Lord Jesus tarries and, and other men that are here now may not be here, and you young people will be in leadership and realize that these things happen. Thomas Brooks, a Puritan, here's what he said. Discord and division become or becoming. That's the idea. No Christian. They're not attractive to a Christian. Watch this. For wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder. But for one lamb to worry another. Look at this. This is unnatural and monstrous. We're not to treat one another like that. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to care for one another. Let's not rip one another. Let's not harm one another. Let's not be malicious with each other. Let's give each each other margin. Let's believe the best of each other. Say, well, I did that once and I got burned. I'd rather do that than to assume wrong and to be wrong. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17 Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them, Paul said, which cause divisions. The word mark means to identify them. And offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. I think here he's talking about church discipline. People that are in the church that that begin to cause divisions. He said, you need to mark them. And then look at this, and avoid them. Mark them and avoid them. You need to know who they are. And and some of you, there's some people in the church you're not supposed to spend time with. You're not supposed to spend time with a slanderer. You say, well, I'm going to help them. Listen, you don't catch good health. You catch germs from people. I'm not better than anybody. In fact, that's why I'm not supposed to do it because I'll end up in the same pit. Then he goes on and says, For they that are such, look at this, they serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly or their own wants, their own desires. But here's how they operate, by good words and fair speeches. Deceive the hearts of the simple. Because that's how they get their foot in. With their charisma, with their personality, maybe they have a gift of speaking, they're a good administrator or whatever. But people that do not have the, the marks in James chapter 3, and uh, it's not first pure, it's not peaceable, and so forth. And they're sowing these seeds. And again, I'm not trying to correct anything. God knows my heart. This is just where we're at in the Word of God at this time. But the same thing is true in your home. You have to deal with this. But it starts with you, Daddy and Mom. Maybe your mom and dad were like this. Maybe Grandma and Grandpa were like this. I remember driving up to a home and I saw the kids outside and uh, said, well, we can talk to them. One of the kids was a little bit upset and I said, what's wrong? He said, what's my dad? The teenager, the young man I saw to, there were two of them. So he's just like, he's like my grandpa. He's just negative all the time. He complains. He's so negative all the time. And what had happened is those seeds that were sown in the fathers in the house were sown by the grandfather who was in a grave and had already passed away, but they were becoming harvested. And maybe that's true in your life. You need to repent. 
And come to the cross. Ask God to help you. Thomas Manton, another Puritan, he said, Divisions in the church always breed atheism in the world. You believe that? I believe that. I've seen it happen. A splinter church will never accomplish her mission. I could have uh, Floyd share more of this. He knows because of his experience in the ministry. But uh, you'd be shocked if you knew sometimes what preachers dealt with. Um, on occasion where I've had people literally make faces while I preach. I don't mean fun faces like Miss Belcher. I don't mean that. I talk people that are angry. And I'll glance back there. Are they doing that? Oh, my. And then I have to dissuade myself to other places in the auditorium. And they're, they're so angry at other people that were would meet me on the way to up to, as I'm walking to the church, to want to give me a, a full piece of their mind. So angry. I mean, I'll just be honest with you, it's hard to preach like that. Hard to preach on the peace of God after you get things like that. And the conflict of the world that comes, to, and, and I know it comes in, in your way, but I think here's what happens. I think you you look at pastors and think, well... If you lived in the dirty world that I live in, I know you do. I know you do. Believe you me, I know you do. But in the world of accusation and assigning of motives to some of your pastors that are here. And I defend your pastors. I've lost people in our church because I've offended them. And they may not always be right. And I may not always be right. But it's a a difficult job. And living is difficult. But it's just so easy just to spout out negative things. I've told you before about... uh, About a long letter I got, page after page, I don't know, six or seven pages, just criticizing me about an issue. I remember as I read that, I read that letter, I said, you don't know, you don't know the whole story. You don't know the other side of the issue. And I just took it. Not because I'm a good man, but because I knew there was no need in trying to to fight or to explain back. There's no need. And I knew that there was some sniping going on. This was not a church member. This was someone else. It was not a church member. There were ways to handle that then. And I remember, how do you defend your reputation you have to let God do it. This is good for you too, not just for the preacher. 
God allows things like this to happen to us. You give your reputation to God. Individual that uh, wrote that letter approached me. Said, uh, met them at a particular occasion. Came up to me and said, I need to apologize to you. I don't know if you remember, but I wrote you a letter. <laughs> oh, I I remember the letter. I didn't say this. I want to say, oh, it still had the steam on it. I, I'll never forget the letter. But there were some things that I didn't know. And you were right. And I'm sorry. I said, well, I appreciate that. Thank you for your kindness. But I couldn't help. I couldn't help it. Well, what about all those people you talked to? Are you going to go back to them? And the people they talked to? But I had to I had to leave my reputation with God on that. Several years ago I was going through my files in my office and I have no idea why it was in there. But I came across that letter. Long letter. And I said, Here is that letter. What in the world is it doing in here? And it still had steam on it. <laughs> and I started tearing it up. And real little tiny pieces. So the people that took the trash out wouldn't see it. Tore it up in minuscule pieces. And I put it away. And that's what some of you that have been hurt by other people, you need to do. You just need to release it. The message today, and that's just an introduction. There's much more I want to say. That's just an introduction to what we'll get into later. Is you are sowing seeds that are going to either come up into abundant harvest for your children and your children's children. Or you're sowing seeds of conflict and negativity and sin. That are going to break your heart one day. I want you to bow your head with me. Would you do that?